So I was thinking through the message this week. I was thinking about the promises that affect my life. One of the things about a promise is that a promise has impact on us. Think about some of the promises that maybe you've made. I was working through the end of the year stuff, getting ready for taxes. And I was thinking about a particular promise, a promise to pay my mortgage. The bank says I can live in my house, which isn't really my house, it's their house, and they can take it from me if I choose not to pay. But I can live there if I fulfill a promise that I've made. And the promise that I made is to pay my mortgage on the first of the month. And I have 15 days grace period. If I don't pay within that time, then I have penalties. And if I don't eventually pay, they're going to come and they're going to kick me out of my house. That's a promise. And it affects a lot that I do. I was, as we were looking, the way I get paid, I get paid every other week. And so sometimes, as I'm getting paid, there are three pays in a month instead of just two pays. And that makes a difference. And it's sort of like cash flow changes on those months. And you go, woo-woo, you know, because I just plan my budget on two payments a month instead of three. And so when there's three, it's kind of a a happy time. And I realize that as I go through the year, I have to decide, okay, is this a three-month, a three-pay month or a two-pay month? And if it's a three-pay month, then I can wait another week until I have to pay. And I thought, "This, this thing really affects my life just because they made a promise. Think about some of the other promises that are made. Politicians make the promise to to faithfully um, protect and abide by the Constitution. Some keep that promise, some don't. But that's a promise that's made. If you are in the military, you promise to protect the country against enemies, both what, domestic, foreign, and domestic. It's a promise you make. And we know that there are men and women in this country that have made the ultimate sacrifice for that commitment, that promise, and gave their lives in order to fulfill it. But that's promises that I make. What about promises that are made to me? And as I thought about the promises in my life, I realized that most of them are either promises that I've made or promises that I enter into that are sort of two-sided. I was thinking about marriage. Marriage is a promise. It's a covenant. Biblically, it is a covenant. It is a sacred commitment that I make to the one who is my spouse, and it is a unilateral covenant. It's not a 50-50 proposition. It's not, I'll love you if you love me. It's not, I'll love you in, in, in richer or poorer sickness and health as long as you love me in richer or poorer in sickness and health. That is not the way Scripture talks about marriage. Marriage is a unilateral covenant. I promise to love Cindy for the rest of our lives together. She promises to love me. Now, love doesn't mean always doing the thing that I want her to do. I learned that in the first month or two of marriage. In the same way back. I learned that once I was married, my thinking had to change. My life had to change. The choices that I was making had to change. That I couldn't just think about myself. That took about 20 years to figure out. But it changes me. Promises affect us. 
when I'm out and I'm out in the world or I'm doing something and I'm speaking to a person of the opposite sex, the fact that I am married changes the interaction in significant ways. The fact that I am married changes how I handle those year-end funds and what I'm thinking about, and I think about us together, and it changes so much of who I am and what I do. But when you're making a promise, and even more when you're receiving a promise, whether or not you live that out has an awful lot to do with the person who's making the promise. Whether you can trust them, whether they're trustworthy people, whether or not they have a track record of keeping that which they promise, and I need to know them well before I commit myself fully to that person. Well, as we begin a study on the life of Abraham, and we're going to look at it, it will take us into the beginning of the summer. We'll take a break for for uh, Lent, and then we'll kind of get back into it. We talk about, as we look at the life of Abraham, one primary truth, and that's this. God's people are people of the promise. And everything we do should be affected by living in response to the promises of God. The Old Testament word was the word covenant. But unlike most of the covenants that I find myself in, whether it's marriage or whether it's my mortgage or whether it might be, I find that it's two-way. The covenant that we find in the Old Testament, the covenant we find with Abraham, and the covenant that affects us is not one that is I promise and God promises. It is one way. God promises, period. End of discussion. And when God promises, those who accept his promise, will know its fulfillment. And so we begin this study by looking at the life of Abraham, and it's basically a story about this. It is living by faith or faithlessness in the light of God's promise. Every aspect of our lives as God's people, as people of the promise, as people of the new covenant, as people living out the reality of accepting that which God has given to us, Every aspect of our lives is dominated by the question, is this response a response of faith? Or is this response a response of faithlessness? I wonder how many of us bought uh, Powerball tickets yesterday. Do you know no one won? By Wednesday, it'll be $1.3 billion dollars. And I was thinking as I was watching the news coverage, and there was one shot, I think it was in California, right at the border of Nevada, where the line was a quarter of a mile long. And they were going around interviewing those people. What would you do with a billion? Or at that time, it was only 900 million. You know, it was only that much. What would you do with $900 million? I wonder how many of them thought, It is God's promise to me that dominates my answer to that question. I wonder how many of those standing in line thought about 
whether I should or shouldn't buy a Powerball ticket. How many of them thought about that in light of God's promises to me? Is this an act of faith or faithlessness? Every aspect of our lives, when we understand God's covenant with us, is built either on faith or the lack of it. And that's the story. That's the story of Abraham. As we work our way through this story and and the, the chapters that are involved in it, from the end of chapter 11 all the way through to chapter 25, as we look at those chapters, as we look at that story, over and over and over and over, get the point? We're going to be confronted with this question. Did Abraham respond in faith? Or did Abraham respond in faithlessness? Now, obviously, the story of Abraham is found in the book of Genesis. And I believe that Genesis was written by Moses. Nowhere in Genesis does it say Moses is writing this, but history and later books of the Bible talk about the books of Moses and talk about Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And so I, I believe that Moses wrote it. There may have been some editorial things done um, in it to kind of bring it up to date a little bit so people would understand it. But it was written by, by Moses. And it is the story of Moses as he's leading God's people into the promised land. And that's essential. We need to understand both the author and when he's writing it. He's writing it as the people are making their way out of Egypt And they're making their way into the promised land that God has promised them. As they're making their way out of paganism, out of Egypt, out of a land in which there were multiple gods and everything was controlled by a god. There was the god of the river and the god of the sun and the god of the moon and the god of the wind and the god of the locusts and the god of the frogs and the god of this and the god of... It's why the plagues do what they do. The plagues are all the way of God saying, you think that's a god? Watch this. And so God is taking this man, Moses, and inspiring him to write a book that prepares the people to live under God's promise in the land that they're heading to. And so as we make our way through this book, we're going to begin to see its its purpose. Its purpose is to provide the historical and theological basis for Israel's existence as a covenant people. Israel wanted to know, why are we in this land? Israel wanted to know, why are we special? Israel wanted to know, what is it that is leading us out of Egypt where they have the leeks and the garlics? Onions and garlics, that's what they were thrilled over. Why are we doing this? And once we get there, how are we supposed to live? What is our lives supposed to be like? Are we to be like the Egyptians? Are we to be like the Canaanites? Are we to be like the Amorites? What are we to be like? Moses wrote a book to say, this is the story that underpins it all. And if you want to understand, understand God chose you through his grace and mercy, not because you were a great people, but because he chose you. And you are his people. And he chooses to pour out his purpose upon you. That's the Old Testament. 
The purpose is that it prepares the people to receive the law. Why should I obey the law? Because God is your God and God gives the law. It prepares the people to live within the covenant. Every time there's a promise given, there's a way that I live that out. One of the things that we have to understand is God doesn't make a covenant with us because we promise to live in a certain way. It's not God promises and we promise. The covenant of God is not a marriage. The covenant of God is I will choose you to do and to be this in your life. All you need to do is accept that promise. That's salvation. Now, based on that relationship, not to get it, not to keep it, not to make God love me more, not to make God you know, be more on my side, whatever the things are that we do to try to manipulate God, God says, if you accept my promise, everything you do then ought to be lived out as a result of that promise. Not to get it. Not to keep it. So God was preparing his people to live under covenant. God is revealing the very nature of who he is. If someone says, trust me, what's the next question you probably ought to ask? Who are you? Genesis chapter 3 is one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture. And it's where Moses is interacting with God and you know, Moses is talking about the fact that it's unfair that God's people have been under um, slavery for 400 years. And God says to Moses, Moses, I'm going to deliver my people. And Moses is like, yay, God. And then it's Moses. I'm going to do it through you. And my translation of the Hebrew is say what? Huh? And Moses' first question is, who am I? And God answers and says, you're clay. That's not his name. I mean clay. And you just need to trust me. Do you know what Moses' second question is? So what kind of God are you? And God says, I am who I am. I am the God of who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You want to know what I'm like? Go back and remember their stories, and I'll show you what I'm like. It reveals that he is living, that he is sovereign, that he is powerful, that he is righteous, that he is holy, that he is good, that he is one. Everything different from the gods of Egypt. Everything different from the gods that surrounded them. God says, I am God. I am like no other God anyone ever talks about. I am the real God. I am living. I am not um, capricious. I'm not. I am sovereign. I am powerful. I am righteous. I am holy. I am good. You can trust in this God. And that's what the story of Abraham tells us. How does Genesis begin in Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, what? God. And of all the things that Genesis focuses on, it is God that is the primary focus. What is he like? And why can you trust him? Why can you have faith? It provides the foundation of the law. This, this way that God 
says live in the midst of the promise. The basic concepts that God requires obedience and those who obey enjoy the promises of God. Those who disobey are separated from those promises. It's not that I obey to get them. It's I obey to enjoy them. They're mine. They're there. But in order to appropriate them, in order to enjoy them, in order to live in the midst of them, I need to live by faith in obedience to what God says. And those that don't are separated from that enjoyment, not from the covenant, not from the relationship, but the enjoyment of it. I say to my children and have said to them all through their life and now say to my grandkids, I will love you no matter what. You may not enjoy that love, depending on how you interact with your dad or your grandfather. But I will love you. And that will not change. That's what God says. And that's what the story of Abraham is all about. God is faithful even when Abraham is unfaithful. God keeps his promises. God loves his covenant people. It tells us that humanity is the crowning event of God's creation, that man is given authority under the sovereignty of God to rule and subdue, and man there meaning mankind, humanity. It provides the idea, the ceremonial foundation of things like the Sabbath. Why did the Israelites have to set aside the Sabbath, the seventh day? By the way, do you know why that happened and why it changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament? In the Old Testament, the singular greatest event of all of pre-Christ history was creation. But once Christ came, what was the central event of all history? The death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. So we don't honor the seventh day anymore. We focus on the first day the day that Jesus was resurrected, on the first day of the week. It teaches us about sacrifice. It teaches us about priests and circumcision and tithing and prayer and remembrance. All that is found in the story of Abraham. It provides of us a civil foundation. It tells us why there is marriage, why there is inheritance, why there is civil responsibility. All of that is laid out in this story of Abraham. This is how you live under the promises of God. Now, that's the story of Genesis. That's the whole big story of Genesis. And when you're working your way through Genesis, you can divide it into two sections. The first is chapters 1 through 11 that speak about the way the curse of disobedience spreads throughout all of humanity. That it began with a single husband and wife and spread to all of mankind. The focus is on the consequences of sin, both in the individual 
and in life as human beings. But in chapter 12, it suddenly changes. And the focus shifts from the impact of disobedience to suddenly God's grace and God's promise as it starts with one husband and wife and works its way through all of humanity and eventually creation. That break takes place in Hebrews chapter, I mean Hebrews, in Genesis chapter 12. It begins with a a statement that does not strike us. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 11, actually. It's It's the beginning of this story. It begins a few verses in Genesis chapter 11. And in Genesis chapter 11, at the very end, it begins with, this is the account of Terah. And then it tells us a little bit about Terah and about his children, and particularly about a man by the name of Abraham that was one of his children. And then in verse 10, I'm sorry, in verse 30, it says this. Now Sarah was, what's the next word? Barren. Now I noticed none of you when you read that word went, because we're so accustomed to it. Do you know the very first time the word barren is ever used in Scripture? Is right here. Up until this point, it was fruitfulness and fruitfulness and more and more and growing and developing. And all of a sudden, in the middle of that, there's a problem. Sarah is not fruitful. taken by shock. What's God going to do? And the answer is, just as God will enter into the barrenness of Sarah's womb, God enters into the barrenness of human existence and brings promise. Suddenly, Genesis changes. And as you read through the book of Genesis, what you are reading is a theological history. As Moses was thinking through the history of of the world and thinking through the history of, of, of Israel, he was choosing just certain events to say, this shows something. This is important. This is essential. These are the things I want you to focus on. It is not a moment-by-moment-by-moment-by-moment-by-moment history. In fact, you have the entire story of Abraham's life for almost 100 years, and it's made up of about 10 stories. That's it. But they're the important stories. Because they show us what God is like. I was surprised when... We were in down in Louisiana. We were involved in the Hurricane Katrina relief stuff. And we had teams, and a lot of teams from Pennsylvania come down to do relief work. Then one came down from a church up in the Allentown area, and there was a young man there that came up to me and said, Hey, Keith! And I remember looking at him saying, I don't think I know you. How do you know me? And as we were talking, I discovered we were in youth group together. For several years, 
no memory of him. I hope he never listens to this sermon. And I realized, you know, even our memories, if you think back to your memories, your memories are focused around significant events in your life. If you want to know what I, I mean, go see Inside Out. You know, the, 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 the important memories, the core memories. Well, these are the core memories of the nation. And Alan Ross wrote an incredible book on, or a commentary on Genesis, says this. Moses, under divine inspiration, selected the materials for the work, arranged them in the most effective way, and drew out their greater significance by the choice of terms and the use of literary devices. Moses says, this is important. And when you read through You're going to come across a word, if you read it in some of the older translations, it's the word Toledoth. These are the Toledoths of Adam. These are the Toledoths of of creation. These are the Toledoths of Shem. These are the Toledoths of Terah. Where you read there, and we were reading in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 27, where it says, this is the account of Terah. Well, that's how Moses sort of divided his book. And he divides it into 11 sections. And each time you read that word to the Toledoth, though it literally means to give birth, the idea is, this is what proceeded from, or this is what became of. So when I read of, this is the Toledoth of Adam, it is, this is what came out of Adam. Three sons. One killed the other. The third was the son of promise. Or this is what became of the earth. As God created the heavens and the earth, it's an introduction. It is a a, a statement about all of creation being that act of God. And then when you come to Genesis chapter 2, it says, these are the Toledoths. This is what came out of that creation. What does God do? He takes the mud of creation, and out of that comes what? Adam and Eve. These are the Toledoths of Noah. And over and over again, you get that idea of this is what became of. This is what comes out of. There are 11 sections. Ten of them begin with this word, Toledoth. One, Genesis chapter 1, 1, is an introductory verse. It doesn't use the word Toledoth because the idea is that, that God, everything is God. So he didn't use, Moses didn't use the word there, but all of the rest flow out of there. And we'll just run through this real quick. The first one is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. And that is, out of nothing, God brings forth blessing. He brings order out of chaos. Why is there no Toledoth in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? Because there's nothing but God. And so God brings everything out of nothing. The second Toledoth is the Toledoth of heaven and earth. Out of blessing, man brings curse, corruption, And the evil spreads throughout all of mankind. The Toledoth of Adam, the curse through death, spreads to all. And evil multiplies. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Until finally God says, that's it. I need to do this all over again. In a manner of speaking. 
the Toledoth of Noah. The curse continues through chaos. Then God uncreates and recreates and establishes his covenant with Noah. But guess what? Man is still corrupt. And the corruption continues. The Toledoth of the sons of Noah. Confusion reigns as they come and they choose to to build the Tower of Babel. And there's just confusion overall. Corruption continues. And so you see that first really huge curse of complete separation of the people. You have the Toledoth of Shem. In the midst of all of the cursing, there's one who's promised, Shem. And God honors Shem. You have the Toledoth of of Terah, and that's the one we're going to be looking at. That's the story of Abraham. Out of Terah came Abraham, and the covenant is established through promise and blessing to a chosen family. This family will become the foundation of all that God will do in salvation. The Toledoth of Ishmael, to show that even when God promises to those that aren't in that line, he is still faithful. The Toledoth of Isaac, that the covenant continued through the line of promise. The Toledot of Esau, the covenant expands to include other nations, and then he repeats it again. There's a second Toledot of Esau and his sons. And then, finally, the Toledot of Jacob. The covenant is protected, and a nation is born. Now, when you look at the book of Genesis, there's a structure to it. It's called chiastic. And as you look at the story of Abraham particularly, as you begin to focus on that Toledoth of Terah, I know this is technical stuff. We'll get through it real quick, and then we'll get to the, you know, the fun stuff. It begins by the genealogy of Terah, and it ends by the genealogy of Nahor. It deals with the promise of a son, the start of a spiritual journey for Abraham. Towards the end, it deals with the birth of a son. And the climax of the spiritual story, Abraham, will you sacrifice your son to me? One of the most confusing chapters in all of Scripture. It deals with Abraham lies and God protects him, even in his unfaithfulness. Guess what it deals with at the end? Abraham lies and God protects him. It deals with Lot's settlement in Sodom. It deals with Lot's fleeing Sodom from Moab. It deals with Abraham's interceding for Lot. Guess what? It deals with Abraham's interceding for Lot. But here's the focus. The covenant in Ishmael. The covenant in Isaac. When you see a chiastic construction. The teller of the story wants you to focus on the middle. And when you look at the middle, this is what you see in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. And Abraham, what? Believed. Had faith. Trusted in the promise. That's the story. That's the center. That's the focus. Abraham believed God and God was faithful. 
When we trust God's promises, when we put our faith in God, God will fulfill what he says he's going to do. As a famous Louisianian used to say, guaranteed, if you know Justin Wilson. Now, when we come to want to understand the Bible, let me just talk on this real quickly. Our first goal is to study the Bible to understand what the author was saying. What was Moses saying to the people of Israel? How many of us are planning to quit their job, sell their house, and move to Israel? How many of you plan to do that? See? But that's what Moses was speaking about. That's what Moses was focused on. Let me ask you a question. How many of you here like shrimp? Raise your hand. See, none of you could do that in the Old Testament after the book of Exodus. Can't eat shrimp because it's a sea creature without gills and, 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 and um, um, scales. Moses was writing to a particular people at a particular time. And we need to ask the question, what was he trying to say to them? And then once we've determined that, there's a second question we need to ask. And that is, our understanding is not complete with just the author's meaning to those people. There are eternal truths that must be drawn from the author's meaning. No, none of us are heading to Israel to to live over there for the rest of our lives. None of us are, you know, God has not promised us in our 90s to have a child. Thank you, God. But God promises, God covenants, God is faithful. We are people of promise. We live under the promise. And so we draw those out and say, this is where what Moses meant to the people of Israel has an impact and an effect on my life. We must work through the differences that separate us and draw out the shared experiences of believers in earlier centuries and believers today. Let's talk about the things that separate us. We live in a different culture. How many of you, when you made a contract with somebody, took an animal and cut it in half and put one on one side and one half on the other side and walked down the middle of it? Jim, do you do that when you make a contract? Jim's not here. Yeah, he's been clipped off. We don't do that. We sign on the dotted line. Now, you just sort of initial it on the PDF file that comes over your computer. We live in a different culture. When you made a contract in Abraham's time, you took an animal, cut it in half, laid it on two different sides, walked in between, and what you were saying was, if I break this contract, might this happen to me? That's pretty severe. You know what's interesting in the story of Abraham? When God is making the covenant with with Abraham, he slices up an animal, has Abraham do it, lays it down, and only one person walks between them. Only God. That's significant. There's a difference in language. I don't think anybody here, maybe one or two, might speak ancient Hebrew. None of us speak ancient or the language of Abraham or the language that Moses wrote in. 
So that's kind of, you know, we struggle with that sometimes. There's a different covenant. He lived under the old covenant where you couldn't eat shrimp. We live under the new covenant where we can. You know, I just had ribs the other day. Pork ribs. Yum. Couldn't do that in the old covenant. So we live under a different covenant. But beloved, we live under a covenant promises. We live under a time when we have the fulfillment of the demands of the law in Jesus. The old covenant's been fulfilled. There's a new covenant taking its place. We lived in life after the cross where things changed eternally. And finally, we live under progressive revelation. Do you know you know more about God than Abraham did? You know that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He didn't. Do you know that you understand the presence of the Spirit in your life in ways that he never did? Do you know that you understand heaven in ways that he never did? Do you know after Jim's class, you're going to know more about demons and angels than Abraham ever did? Until he died and went to heaven, yes. But here's where it really gets cool. How do we share? The first thing is, like Abraham, believers today are people who live under promise. If we trust Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, if we accept the promise, if we accept that Christ died for our sins, God did it. All we do is receive it. From that moment, we are people of promise, and every aspect of our lives ought to be dominated by that promise, that we are his children, that he is our Father, that he will always provide for us, that he loves us, that the anger that exists towards my sin has been dealt with in Christ, and therefore every interaction of God in my life as a believer is based on God's love, not his judgment. That's done with. I live a life that understands that God knows me fully and fully loves me, and I live that out in everything that I do. I understand that this life is not the end. I don't live. I'm not ultimately a citizen of the United States. This life is not my end. My end is to be a a citizen of God's kingdom and to live that out as an ambassador of that kingdom in this country until the, the, the king calls me home and I get to live back where my ultimate citizenship is for all of eternity. That affects how I live. That affects whether or not I play the Powerball. That affects how I choose to live tomorrow. That affects how I choose to love Cindy and my children. That affects what is the foundation of that love. I love them because why? Because Jesus loves me. And there's a reservoir and pool that is there that I can draw out of and love them well. I know what it means to love because I know how Christ loved. Isn't it interesting that the Old Testament says, love your neighbor as yourself? But Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment that you love as I have loved. Totally different. Just like Abraham, we are people of promise. A little bit different promise, but we're to live it out in every aspect of our lives. 
Like Abraham, we live in the enjoyment of the promises based on our willingness to respond to the events of our lives in faith. Will I choose to respond to this trusting God or not? Abraham goes to Egypt, and God says, I'm going to bring a child out of Sarah. You're going to have a child, and it's going to become a great nation. And he gets down to Egypt, and when he's down in Egypt, things look a little bit precarious. And so what what does Abraham do? He chooses to lie, take matters into his own hand. He lives in faithlessness, and it doesn't lead to enjoyment. God has to deliver him. We enjoy the promise when we live in faith. But here's the central one. Like Abraham, our God is sovereign and is not manipulated by our actions. Let me ask you a question. If you have that time alone with God each day or periodically, why do you do it? Do you do it to make God like me? That's manipulation. Do you do it so my day will be blessed? That's manipulation. Why'd you come to church this morning? So that I'll be happy and I'll be joyous and I'll be, uh uh-uh. We don't obey God to get. We've gotten. So based on what is already ours, we respond in a specific way. Should you have a time alone with God? Yes! Don't walk out of here and he said, I don't have to have my devotions. But don't do it to get. Do it because you got. Don't come to church to get. Come to church because you got. Don't love your wife or your husband to get. Love them because you got all the things that we do come out of what we got to enjoy what God has promised. Like Abraham, we can be certain that God's promises never, 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 never fail even when I do. And that's every moment I fail. That's true. And as we read through the life of of, of Abraham, we need to understand, wow, Abraham really messed it up there. But God is gracious. God is loving. God is faithful. God is merciful. God promises are fulfilled even when we try to mess it up royally. That's the story of Abraham and Sarah and his handmaid and saying, Sarah says, go have a child through my handmaid and all that. It's, it's Abraham messing up. But God's still fulfilling his promise. See, some of you are sitting here today saying, I've really messed my life up. I really wanted some bad direction. 
God hasn't changed. And if you're his child, his promises are still certain. And his love is just as full and complete. And then finally, like Abraham, God's promises are appropriated by grace, comes through God's grace, through faith, and are fully enjoyed, not fully gotten. They're gotten by faith. They're enjoyed as we live out what we already got. As Paul was thinking about Abraham, he says this. What does Scripture say? Abraham fulfilled all of the requirements that he was supposed to fulfill under the law, and it was credit to him as righteousness. Is that what it says? No. Abraham believed God, accepted God's promise, trusted in God, and it was credited to him as a right relationship with God. And then, therefore, the promises came not by obedience, not by sweating it out, not by all of that. The promises came by faith. Faith that trusts God and lives out what I got. So that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. Not only those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. Paul understood as he was looking at Abraham's story. Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, there are more verses talking about Abraham and Abraham's faith than any of the other heroes of the Old Testament. Abraham believed and left his country. Abraham believed and settled in, 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 uh, palace, in, in the land of, of Cana. Abraham believed and God provided his son, even when Sarah was no longer a spring chicken anymore. That's Keith's translation. Abraham believed, even when God said, give me your son. His faith. It begins by faith in Christ as Savior in this covenant. And it is lived out as we grow in that faith, just like Abraham. Do you notice God didn't come to Abraham the very first day of that relationship and say, let's talk about Isaac. His faith had to grow. But as it grows, we enjoy more and more and more the promises that we already got and have the opportunity to live them out. Father, thank you for the story of Abraham. <clears throat> Be with us over the next few weeks as we come to understand your promise. Father, I pray that everyone here has placed their faith in your son and enters into that promise, that covenant. Father, those of us who know that covenant, that know that promise, may we live our lives out as those who got that relationship with you, not to get. Teach us what it means to have faith in the great God 
the great God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, the great God who was willing to come in Christ and redeem us to himself. Father, we pray that you would teach us your wisdom on how to live that out in a day-by-day life. We ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus.